Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. We are reading from Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, although not the whole chapters, you'll be glad to hear. These are God's words. And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeper that creepeth upon the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them. And God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. Genesis 2. Yahweh God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And Yahweh God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, dying thou shalt die. And Yahweh God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a help meet for him. And out of the ground Yahweh God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them unto the man to see what he would call them. And whatsoever the man called every living soul, that was the name thereof. And the man gave names to all the livestock, and to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for man there was not found a help meet for him. And Yahweh God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And he took one of his sides, and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the side which Yahweh God had taken from the man made he a woman, and brought her unto the man." And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Before we consume God's word, let us thank him for providing us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the word that you have spoken to us. Please send your spirit to help me rightly divide it and distribute it to each of us as he has need. Enlighten our minds to know its meaning and cultivate our hearts that we may bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. We have been experiencing a lot of vocational upheaval in our church recently, with jobs being threatened and work being inconsistent and the future being unclear. So Jared asked me to preach on vocation which I happily agreed to do, somehow not realizing, despite the continual and repeated pattern in my homiletical career, that this would inevitably turn into at least two sermons. So today we are going to look at vocation in general terms, what God made mankind for, and how this informs what we should be doing with our lives and how we should be thinking about and approaching the things that God gives us to do. And next week, we will see how that general calling of mankind applies differently to men and to women, and how we are to pursue it in a way that is pleasing to God. The first thing that we need to do is make sure that we know what we are talking about when we talk about vocation. Different people can understand that term quite differently, and certainly our spiritual forefathers would have used it in a way that is different than it would be typically used today. So do you know what vocation means? <laughs> vocation is from 
the Latin word meaning to call. Think of vocal, which has the same Latin root. Vocation means your calling, what you are called to do. Your vocation is what you are called to do. Your vocation is what you are called to do. <laughs> vocation is not fundamentally your career. Of course, a career can be a calling, but I hope that you would agree that obviously career and calling are not the same thing and they shouldn't be treated as the same thing. We can have many callings in our lives that are not careers, and we can have careers that are not callings. I worked on a help desk for seven years. And although I got a lot of calls, I can assure you that job was not my calling. So today, I want to look at the idea of calling or vocation. What does scripture say about our calling as human beings? What does it say about our calling as men and women? We'll look at that more next week and our calling as individuals as well. Today, I want to focus on our calling as mankind. What is it that God calls man to do? And of course, we start in Genesis. Adam and Eve, as the first man and woman, set the pattern for all humanity. The God who calls Adam in the garden is the same God who calls us. And we are the same flesh with Adam. Or put slightly differently, what the man was created to do is what man is created to do. Man is created to work. And this work is so important, so central to our existence and our purpose, that Genesis gives us two creation accounts so that we would properly understand it. The first account gives us the broad strokes. It is a world-oriented account. It's global in scale. It does not show us individuals. It doesn't show us people. It shows us mankind as a whole, male and female. Man is created in God's image to continue God's own work of ordering the world, forming and filling the great domains of creation that he has established in the first six days. God creates man on the sixth day as the final act to continue the work that he has begun. He is made as a sub-creator on God's behalf. Genesis 1 teaches us that man is created for productive rulership as God's representative on earth, as his stand-in, his symbol, fruitfully ordering the world. We're going to talk a fair bit about work today and even about toil, so let me add something here at the beginning. The vision of Genesis 1, which tells us the purpose of man, his teleology, what man is made for, this vision is as foreign to the rest of the ancient world as it is to the modern world. The mindset of the peoples who lived in biblical times was generally that man was made as a slave of the gods because the gods got sick of working, so they needed some kind of lesser being to take that work on for them. Now, the only thing that this gets right is that man is made to work, but man is not made as a slave. We see in Genesis 1, man is made as a king. And it shows us also that man participates in God's work, not because work is bad and God didn't want to do any more of it, but because work is good and God wanted us to share in it. He made man to take up 
the very good work that he began in the first six days. So man shares in the work of God as a son. Not, he's not subjected to work that is beneath God as a slave. Now, if all we had was Genesis 1, we might be a bit confused, really, because none of us are kings, and people who call each other kings are cringe. I don't make the rules, I just deliver them. Genesis 1 gives us this grand cosmic vision of man's dominion, and yet our lived experience day to day, our own lives, don't quite match up to this grand cosmic vision. And this is not a result of the curse. Well, okay, it's, it's a little bit a result of the curse. The fall did have something to do with the sad state of our lives, but look closely at Genesis 2. And you will see that before man fell into sin and ruin, he still had a pretty mundane job to do. His work of dominion did not start on a cosmic throne with a scepter in his hand. It started in a garden with a spade in his hand. Well, he didn't even have a spade. He had to figure out how to make a spade. Genesis 2 gives us a much closer, more intimate look at what exactly man's work of dominion is supposed to look like and how he is to share in God's rule, God's ordering of the world. The second account is not world-oriented. It's not global in its scale. It's not cosmic. It's focused on the local, human, personal, individual scale. We see God plant a garden. So we learn that he's not above that kind of small-scale, menial-seeming work. We see that he puts the man into the garden to work it and keep it. This is how man's life in the world begins, and instructs us in what man is called to. It tells us that he is made to work and keep a tiny little piece of the earth. To rephrase it slightly, he is to serve and to guard this small property that is given to him. He is to develop and preserve the garden that his father planted until he is ready to take on the task of expanding it further into the world. So in order to learn to exercise dominion, he is given a small project to start with, working and keeping the garden. Now, this won't surprise you very much, I suspect, but you may even remember me telling you this before. This language, work and keep, is liturgical language. Look at Numbers chapter 3, verses 7 to 8, which speaks of the priests. It says, They shall keep his charge and the charge of the whole congregation before the tent of meeting to work the service of the tabernacle, and they shall keep all the furniture of the tent of meeting and the charge of the sons of Israel to work the service of the tabernacle. So the way that Scripture uses this language in Torah, and this is very common language, but the way that Scripture puts it together in this particular place, it clues us into the fact that Adam was created as a priest. Priests are palace servants, essentially. Before you can be a king, you must learn the ropes. Never trust a boss who hasn't done the job that he wants you to do, right? Before you rule, you must serve. Before you become a father, you must learn to be a son. So Adam was created on the mountain of God to serve in the royal court, the temple. And again, he didn't serve as a slave. 
He was the son of God. Luke 3.38 tells us that explicitly. And so he had to learn the work, the trade, the craft of his father, exercising dominion. This is the work that he was made for. Working or serving is built into the nature of man. But whereas we tend to think of work as something secular, Scripture tells us that man's work is inherently, naturally, inevitably religious. Adam was not made to exercise dominion as an independent, unattached agent, making his own choices. He was made as a son of God. Man's work, his service, is always religious. Remember when we looked at Romans 12, which says, I beseech you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service. And we've talked about how the Greek word behind service is latria, which is the word we get, not latrine, but liturgy. But this word also comes from a root that means work, labor. A latris was a hired servant. So just as Genesis connects Adam's created purpose with work in the service of God, so the New Testament connects our purpose as Christians with work in the service of God. This service, this work, this labor involves discerning and doing the will of God, which is why Paul continues immediately in Romans 12 saying, be not fashioned according to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. All of life is service to God. You know this, our Lord's Day service is like the peak of the mountain. And like Adam, we come to the mountain of God, to the temple, to learn the work of our Father, the pattern of service that we are to apply to all of life. Our worship, our service of God, flows down from here into our daily lives, into the world at large, because we're not made to serve only in the temple. Adam wasn't made to serve only in the garden. He was made to take up God's work in the whole world. By serving in the temple, he would learn that work, the work of dominion that he was made for in the whole world. And that's just the same as us. And this is why Paul, for instance, instructs the Ephesians, Slaves, be obedient unto them that according to the flesh are your masters, with fear and trembling, in singleness of your heart, as unto Christ. Not in the way of eye service, as men pleases, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with goodwill doing service, as unto the Lord. Like he's repeating this quite a lot. As unto Christ, as unto the Lord, not unto men. And in Colossians, he says it even more explicitly. Whatsoever ye do, work heartily, as unto the Lord and not unto men, knowing that from the Lord ye shall receive the recompense of the inheritance, ye serve the Lord Christ. We serve the Lord Christ in all of our work, whatever we find our hand to do. In our six days of labor in the world, we are serving Christ, just as much as when we come into worship on the seventh day in the temple. This is the vocation of man Generally speaking, the big picture calling of every human being ever made. All of life is service to God, but more than, li- more than that, all of life, the form that service takes, is participation in the work of God. Adam is created specifically 
so that God's will may be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is literally the task that's given to him, exercising rulership in God's stead. What what else is he supposed to do but establish the heavenly pattern on earth? He is, after all, the point where heaven and earth join. He is the generation of heaven and earth, the offspring of heaven and earth, a living soul created from the combination of dirt, the earth, and spirit from heaven. He is specifically, perfectly fitted to the task of impressing the heavenly pattern into the earth, because that's literally what he is, the heavenly pattern impressed into earth, spirit-embodied dirt. So it is his job to bring the whole earth into conformity to the heavenly pattern that he learns on the mountain of God. The whole earth was not a garden. God left the world wild and untamed, and he planted a garden for Adam to live in to learn the heavenly pattern. And this is the exact work, spiritually speaking, that Israel, through Moses, picks up as Yahweh's firstborn son, and it is the exact work that Jesus takes over as the new Israel and only begotten son, and of course, it is the exact work that he has begun to fulfill through his church, establishing the heavenly pattern on earth. That's what postmillennialism just is, right? God made man to establish his own presence and rule in the physical realm. In other words, to bring heaven to earth through his living image, which is why the center of the Lord's Prayer, as we repeatedly say, thy, w- thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so on earth. But now, notice something about this that might seem quite surprising. In the Lord's Prayer, we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But what is the very next thing that comes after that? You'd think the next thing that Jesus tells us to pray would have something to do with his kingdom coming and his will be done on earth, right? Something to do with bringing heaven to earth. So what does he tell us to pray for? Give us this day our daily bread. What does this have to do with his kingdom coming on earth? He tells us specifically to pray for our daily bread. Why? What does that have to do with his kingdom coming and his will being done? Well, I think it goes back to Adam. Think about Genesis 3. Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In toil shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee. And thou shalt eat the plant of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread. This is Adam's daily bread. Remember how man was made to work. That work is bound up with eating. There is a continual emphasis in Genesis 1, in Genesis 2, in Genesis 3, and in Genesis 4, if you understand what sacrifices are, on food. We need food every day. So God made grains, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit, Genesis 1.12. And as soon as he gives man dominion, as soon as he instructs them in the work that they are to do of being fruitful and multiplying and subduing the earth, he tells them, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed, which is upon the face of all the earth, And every tree in which is the fruit of the tree yielding seed to you, it shall be for food. It's Genesis 129. 
I think the grains aren't mentioned because Adam hasn't yet learned to manufacture or refine, so he eats the food that springs directly from the earth without needing it to be refined. And then God plants a garden in Eden, and out of the ground made Yahweh God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Genesis 2.9. And Yahweh God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And Yahweh God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, except, of course, the tree of knowledge. And when Adam sinned by eating of that one tree, God cursed his work, particularly as it relates to food. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread. He cursed the earth so that Adam would find it difficult to get his daily bread. Doing God's work of dominion, of bringing the heavenly pattern down to earth, is bound up with food, with daily bread, with eating. And because of sin, it is now hard, and so getting our daily bread becomes toil. So Jesus tells his disciples, if you are going to be doing God's work, and even reversing the curse, which of course we are, because that's what Jesus is doing, redeeming the world, making all things new, then eating is bound up with that. Daily bread has always been at the center of life for man. If we want God's kingdom to come down on earth as it is in heaven, we must start with God providing for us our daily bread. Now, I realize it's probably a bit hard to track with what I'm getting at here, how these pieces fit together. So let me settle here for a moment to try to put everything together for you, because this isn't really about bread. It's about work. Bread represents food, represents work. What I'm wanting you to see is that the grand work of dominion that man is made for has to start with mundane, daily work. That has always been how it is since Adam was made. And that is how Jesus says it must continue. We must be asking for our daily bread. That, that is, we must be focused on our daily work, on regular, routine, mundane things if we are ever to learn the work of our Father in heaven, if we are ever to participate in and advance the glorious dominion that mankind is made for and that Jesus is right now establishing. I think that there is a tendency, especially with some men in the post-mill world, I think you know the kind of men that I'm thinking about online, to have this really epic idea of what dominion should look like. They look at the calling of man, the vocation of Adam summed up in Christ, and they see that it is about cosmic kingship reigning over heaven and earth. And it is. So it's right to want to see governments under Christ, to see nations making laws based on scripture, abolishing abortion, uh, getting rid of jails, throwing out socialism, <laughs> establishing truly free markets, ushering in the post-millennial hope, people living to be hundreds of years old, right? Having great wealth, fruitfulness, churches flourishing, it is right to think of dominion in these very large-scale, general, overarching, cosmic terms. National, international, planetary, global, maybe someday intergalactic, who even knows? But while God will indeed exercise his dominion on this scale, he will redeem the whole world, he does so through work, ordinary labor, at the human scale. He does so through small, mundane, 
individual efforts that very seldom look impressive. Think of the most impressive people we can think of, like Elon Musk. He's so rich and he does all these amazing things. But, I mean, what's he really done? He's done a lot of stuff, but it's not superhuman. Even everything Elon Musk does is just a daily grind. Adam, who we are modeled after, could have been made as a superhuman king with power over the whole planet from the very beginning. But he wasn't made that way. God made him as a gardener. And Jesus continues his model. The first thing we find Jesus doing after rising from the dead is a spot of gardening. He's been raised as king of kings and lord of lords with supreme authority over not just the entire earth, but heaven as well. And Mary sees him, and the first thing that she asks is, Mr. Gardener, sir, where did they put the body? Now, why would she think that he was the gardener? He's the king of kings, isn't he? Well, he probably had a spade in his hand, or pruning shears, or something. He could be out exercising dominion over the Roman Empire, putting his enemies under his feet in a grand cosmic display of force, curling up all of the legions of Rome into a little ball and tossing them into the sun, but he starts his new life after rising from the dead by exercising dominion over the little piece of land that he was born out of, just like Adam. We see the promises of Christ in the gospel, how he will reign, and so when we ask him to do this in the Lord's Prayer, it is natural that we have a vision that is very world-scale, very epic. Christ's reign is going to be epic. It, it already is epic. Think about the things that it has achieved in the world. But he brings us down to earth in the Lord's Prayer by focusing us on our daily bread. What is our part in bringing his kingdom to earth? It's our daily work. Dominion over creation is pretty grand in principle, but Adam was made to be a priest, a servant, before he could become a king and a lord. And Jesus, too, though he was a son, yet learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became unto all them that obey him the author of eternal salvation, named, a, a, named of God, a high priest, after the order of Melchizedek. So he's a priest to begin with, then because of his obedience, he becomes a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, which of course means king of righteousness. So he is a, a king priest. It was only by obedient service that Adam would have entered into the grandness of the plan that God had for him. And it was only by obedient service that Jesus did enter into that glory. Unlike Adam, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That's what Adam did. He literally <laughs> grasped the fruit. Equality with God, there it is, right in my hand. I'll eat it. Take it into myself. No, Jesus emptied himself to become a servant, enduring the cross, in order to attain the glory set before him. Like Adam, like Christ, we must focus on developing and preserving the part of the world that God gives into our care and control. That is our vocation. And this often seems so dull, so boring, so pointless, so annoying. Toilet boards all rotted out. Ugh. We want to think that it's beneath us. And yes, the curse does make it harder than it should be. 
But the primary work that Adam was given to till the ground was also ordinary, mundane, physical, repetitive work. He too had a daily job. Jesus worked as a carpenter. Paul worked as a tent maker. Peter and Andrew were fishing when Jesus called them to ministry. James and John were stitching up broken nets. God puts us over small things in order to teach us patience, in order to teach us diligence, long-suffering, in order to make us skillful and thoughtful, and in order to test our humility and faith. Luke 16, he that is faithful in a very little is faithful also in much, but he that is unrighteous in a very little is unrighteous also in much. If therefore we have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if ye have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And that takes us onto a whole new rabbit trail. So this is actually a good place for us to stop today because this is kind of transition point. It leads us into what I want to talk about next week, which is how we actually go about serving God. How do we do this work without flipping into a ditch somewhere and serving someone else or something else? How do we participate in the work that he calls us to as faithful men and women, sons of Christ, rather than sons of Adam? So we'll look at that next week. But now let's sing Psalm 119.